This is the gist of freedom with Manisha Sinha, Draper Chair in American History and the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. I will be talking to you every third Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Black History and Current Events. You can find over 500 archive shows of the Gist of Freedom on blackhistoryuniversity.com. I look forward to spending every third Saturday afternoon with you. Hello, everyone. This is Manisha Sinha again for our monthly program on history and current events. Um, I am going to begin our show today uh, not talking so much about many of the things that I wanted to address for the month of November, including Thanksgiving, Election Day, Veterans Day, you know, topics that are pertinent for this month. But I would really like to begin with talking about what we are all talking about, and that is the travesty and the complete miscarriage of justice in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I was shocked, even though I expected that verdict, because of the way in which the judge involved did not even bother to hide his prejudices and his biases. He conducted this trial like the defense attorney of Kyle Rittenhouse. This was a serious case of judicial malpractice, a complete miscarriage of justice. I feel really badly for the Rosenbaum and Huber families, but I want them to take heart and remember so many white allies who have fallen and died for this cause. I begin with the abolitionists. Um, there were abolitionists, of course, the most famous everyone knows is Elijah Lovejoy, the newspaper editor who was murdered by a pro-slavery mob, defending his press with a gun, like one of the victims of Kyle Rittenhouse, the man who was injured. He said, yeah, I was defending myself too. Well, Lovejoy was defending his press with a gun because a pro-slavery mob had destroyed. So we've had many such cases before. White abolitionists like Charles Story, who died in a Maryland prison for assisting a fugitive slave. We have had others like Seth Conklin, who was murdered and drowned, again, for assisting a fugitive slave. So mob violence against abolitionists attempts to lynch them, to silence them. So this has been long standing. And we've had laws against interracial marriage that were only overturned, at least in the South, in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, the famous Loving case. Uh, in Massachusetts, it was overturned by white female abolitionists who fought against the state law, even though it was a free state, it had a law against interracial marriage. And they overturned it in the 1840s. They protested and got it overturned. So this is what the racists really fear. They fear that any human being who has any shred of humanity and any respect for human rights will naturally identify with the black cause. And this is why they are now passing laws prevent us from teaching the histories of slavery and racial oppression. But we do know, of course, that we can probably reach them if they are educated, if information is given to them. And that is why 
the GOP, the Republicans today are so interested in creating and scaremongering about teaching African-American history. (coughs) Excuse me, they call it critical race theory, which is a law theory that no one teaches in high schools. But under that rubric, (coughs) excuse me, they're trying to ban books, they're trying to ban literature, they're trying to ban history. You know, certain slaveholders did that. They did that in the um, 1850s where they thought that the books were too sympathetic to abolition and they wanted actually to have uh, books that would be more sympathetic to slavery. So this is a, a long-standing goal of these people to do this. And what they're doing today is completely retrograde. It does not belong to the 21st century. What they're trying to do now is they are trying to actually um, dictate what we teach in schools, which is probably the most undemocratic thing to do. I hope the Rittenhouse decision, or travesty of justice, I should say, um, should act the way the Elijah Lovejoy murder acted in the North. It woke up many Northern So let us think a little bit about the murder of Jacob Blake in Kenosha by a police officer. And not he was not murdered, he was injured. He was seriously injured by a police officer. He was paralyzed after a police officer shot him seven times in his back. That is why the Kenosha protests were taking place. There was no justice for Jacob Blake. The man who shot him got away. And Rittenhouse, who came and shot people, managed to get get away with it too. So this is like a double injustice. It is a double miscarriage of um, justice. And Officer Rastanchevsky, who shot Jacob Blake, is free to go and free to live his life while Jacob Blake paralyzed and Rittenhouse is free to go because he came in those protests against the shooting of Jacob Blake and killed more people. In this case, they happen to be white. So the movement for justice, the movement for black lives is an interracial one. And I would like every conscientious American citizen to see that and know that. Just like the fugitive slave rebellions of the 1850s, they saw how the law could be perverted for injustice. And that is what has happened. So, you know, as I said earlier, uh, maybe it is time to move on now to matters um, that I want to discuss because it is, after all, um, November. And November is such an important day um, for so many reasons. Uh, We had an election. Uh, We recently had an election. um, And and, and some of those people elected, like in my own backyard, Michelle Wu, the first Asian-American woman elected mayor of Boston, was good news. Think about the right to vote and all these new laws that are being passed in different states to curtail the right to vote of particularly African-Americans and other minorities or young people or anyone who basically doesn't vote for the Republican Party. 
They want to make it an authoritarian state, the way Hungary is under Viktor Orban, or Brazil is becoming under Bolsonaro. They don't want elections. They actually want us to uh, live in a state where there is no opposition to them. And that is the way the slaveholders had it in the Confederacy. There were no elections. But guess what? In the Union, there was elections. Abraham Lincoln said, that democratic principle is too important not to have. Not only were presidential elections held in the middle of the Civil War in the Union, but he made sure that all the Union Army soldiers who in the battlefield, citizen soldiers, could vote in those elections. They voted. And they voted in droves for Lincoln in 1864, rather than their copperhead, uh, pro-slavery, southern-sympathizing former commander-in-chief, George McClellan, who was Lincoln's opponent in that presidential election. But the Confederacy had no elections. They had a one-party rule, one-party state, exactly what the Republicans want. The right to vote has been so contested, especially for black men. You know, black men with property could vote in the early republic. So this notion that that is something new or un-American is also fabricated. In fact, black men did vote in the, a handful of New England states right up to the Civil War. But as you have the spread of white men's democracy and the removal of property-holding qualifications for white men, some states actually disfranchise black men, including Pennsylvania and Connecticut. So it is a hard-fought-for right. In New York, they had property-holding qualifications removed for white men, but retained for black men. So here is a case where a white abolitionist, Garrett Smith, who was a land magnate in upstate New York, distributed his land among black male abolitionists so that they would meet that property-holding qualification in order to vote. And then, of course, we know that after Reconstruction, black men got the right to vote in the 15th Amendment, but that was nullified by the South for nearly a century. And it is not until the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, you know, that is after I was born, that's how recent it was, that black men and women got the right to vote in this country. Of course, Shelby versus Holder with this conservative Supreme Court has emasculated the Voting Rights Act, allowing red states and Republicans to pass election laws that could all either overturn the results of a lawful election mm-hmm. or could actually gerrymander and voter suppress their way into victory. These are very dangerous times. If we lose our democracy, we will have nothing left. We can't plan for climate change. We can't plan for anything. So what we will end up with is a situation where we will become a third world country. The American Republic and its constitutional democracy will be gone. This experiment that has lasted for over 250 years will be gone if Republicans get their way. That's how serious an emergency this is. And, you know, scholars of fascism and authoritarianism have been sounding the warning bells ever since Trump won the Electoral College. He didn't win the popular vote. In fact, very few Republican presidents have actually won the popular vote. They have gotten in through this big gerrymander, which is the Electoral College. 
And during Reconstruction, there were many people who wanted to get rid of the Electoral College and have direct elections of the president. In the Progressive Era, we got rid of the indirect elections of uh, senators, and we have direct elections of them now. But we still haven't gotten rid of indirect elections of the president. That allows people of bad character and bad faith, like Trump and others, to seek to intervene in the system, use its weaknesses in order to overturn democratic elections. And they've done that repeatedly. Now they've made it into a fine art. Now they're writing these laws the way the Jim Crow laws were written that actually disfranchised black men, that created segregation, that created debt peonage and convict leasing, and some of the worst travesties of racial injustice in this country. So they're trying to recreate that. That's why a lot of people call it the new Jim Crow. These are new, President Obama called it. He says, these are Jim Crow laws. They're just different, but they're a lot like those old Jim Crow laws, the grandfather clause. You can vote only if your grandfather voted. Well, guess what? Most enslaved people's grandfathers did not vote. Uh, All the literacy clause, all the poll taxes, um, they tried, uh, all the all-white primaries, they tried every way to completely exclude emancipated people, citizens of this country by the 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, from the body, and that's what they're trying to do again. So they had these all-white primaries, which meant that if you voted in a primary for this one party, and at that time, the Democratic Party was the party of white supremacy, not the Republican Party. The tables have turned now after the New Deal and the Civil Rights Movement. But at that time, it was the Democratic Party. So who you voted for in the primary generally won the elections because there was no opponent. So they could institute these all-white primaries without directly flouting uh, the 15th Amendment because it was not the general election. And this is how they maintained white rule in the South. Let's move on to Veterans Day and the General Army of the Republic. This army, this Grand Army of the Republic, um, they actually, even though initially black soldiers served in segregated units, they eventually got equal pay and were able to ascend at times to officer ranks. Um, Black women had their own, as one historian has put it, martial route to freedom. People like Harriet Tubman, Charlotte Fortin, and Susie King-Taylor, they not only were embedded in United States Colored Troops regiments, um, they taught them. Tubman scouted for the Union Army. She did not hesitate to cook and do laundry for the black soldiers. Uh, They were company women. And uh, one of them, Susie King-Taylor, was a remarkable woman. Uh, She was enslaved, fled to freedom in the Civil War in the Sea Islands in Georgia, um, and with her husband, literally served in one regiment. And she was a teacher because she was literate, and she taught many of these soldiers who were former slaves how to read and write. And she completely identified with the Union Army and its cause, which was, of course, not just the Union, but also emancipation for black people. Susie King-Taylor taught after the Civil War briefly in the South, but things got pretty bad in the South quite soon after the fall of Reconstruction. 
And she, like many black and white um, unionists, uh, tried to leave the South. And she came up to Boston, where she founded a chapter of the Grand Army of the Republic, one of the veteran organizations. So these men and women were very patriotic. They were very committed to having that vision of a free and equal American Republic. Um, And you can see this history of black military service, even though these men and women were many times met with prejudice. Black men with arms, black citizen soldiers have always been a threat to American races because these are men who proudly wear the uniform, proudly bear arms, and demand equal rights and citizenship. So they became targets sometimes of the fury of white races many times. And this is a tradition that goes right up to Colin Powell, um, the first black uh, chief of army staff. And he, of course, passed away recently, the first, uh, one of the first, uh, no, he was the first, I think, black secretary of state also under George Bush. Uh, He served proudly. He said the only blot in his record was being forced by the Bush administration to peddle their lives in front of the United Nations because they wanted to take advantage of his moral standing and capital. They felt that if they made Colin Powell say this, everyone would believe them. And Powell, despite his reservations as a good soldier, did that. So despite that, I think Colin Powell's legacy is important because today, especially in our very divided times, he was, after all, a black Republican. But he had the patriotism to see what the Republican Party was degenerating into. And he supported President Obama over John McCain, and he supported Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump who, of course, was completely unqualified in every respect, a buffoon celebrity who became president and then uses racism um, to rile up his followers. Um, So he, of course, as a patriot, also opposed Trump. So that is a bipartisan tradition, right? He was a black Republican who saw the bad road his party was going down. So um, the other thing that is interesting about Colin Powell, of course, is that he had a monument erected at Fort Leavenworth dedicated to the black buffalo soldiers of the United States Army who fought in the Indian Wars. Um, So it's a conflicted legacy. Uh, But these buffalo soldiers were finally recognized by a monument uh, that uh, Colin Powell dedicated So I think it's important to remember that. But also remember that um, these soldiers were, in this case at least, and this is after the fall of Reconstruction, were recruited uh, for a cause. Um, I should also say that um, during the Second World War, um, you brought to my attention that there was a unit of Afro-Japanese soldiers, you know, kind of precursors to Naomi Osaka, the Afro-Japanese tennis champion. Um, and I saw photographs of them, and I was so surprised to see them because I had never seen that before, and we will soon be celebrating Pearl Harbor Day, uh, D-Day, on December 7th, so I thought it's important to mention this. Um, it's, it's important to remember that uh, in 1905, the Russo-Japanese War, when the Japanese defeated Russia, an Asiatic power, a power of color, defeating 
a European, so-called white power, Russia, that victory actually was celebrated in areas colonized by Europeans um, all over the world, Asia and Africa, because people thought that it had destroyed the myth of white supremacy. So the Japanese played this role in the imagination of many colonial peoples in mm-hmm. Asia and Africa. I had no idea that there was actually an Afro-Japanese a regiment during the Second World War, but that's what it seems like. Now, of course, when the Japanese came uh, in the Second World War, they displaced the Dutch and the British in colonies in Asia. They instituted a very brutal regime also. They were not, they were, you know, virtually very militaristic, very fascist, and using the name of the emperor, they uh, made these colonies, instead of, you know, having them as equal Asian citizens, they colonized them as colonies of Japan. And we know that they behave pretty brutally in in China, in Korea, with the comfort women. That is still an issue between Korea and Japan. Uh, But also in the Eastern Front, in Burma, Singapore, and elsewhere, uh, where actually my father served and commanded a Japanese prisoner war camp during the Second World War. So the Afro-Japanese connection is very interesting. But again, the story is always more complicated than the way we understand it, the actual history. I would also like to point out that November is, of course, uh, the month of Thanksgiving. And when we think about Thanksgiving and the first Thanksgiving in 1621 in uh, Massachusetts, in the colony of Massachusetts, we generally tend to think of it as this sort of romanticized notion of the pilgrims and Native Americans coming together and sharing a feast. But I think we can also think of Thanksgiving as a national secular holiday that has been reinvented. Right after the Civil War, Thanksgiving was only celebrated in Massachusetts and the New England states. It was a very regional holiday. But during the Civil War, uh, President Lincoln made Thanksgiving a national holiday. He made it as a, as a national holiday that everyone could celebrate, um, you know, regardless of who they were, to, to celebrate the union, to celebrate national belonging. Uh, and indeed, as an immigrant, I can tell you that most immigrants who came to this country easily adopted the tradition of Thanksgiving as the quintessential you know, American secular holiday. Uh, and Lincoln's pop, you know, proclamation uh, made it so. Uh, so maybe there's room to reinvent Thanksgiving as a moment of national unity, the way Lincoln and Frederick Douglass understood it, rather than simply the legacy of settler colonialism uh, in this country and at the cost of Native American rights. And I think many American citizens today see it that way. They see it as a chance to visit with family, friends, neighbors, and to give thanks for what they have, rather than, you know, the old colonial notion um, that simply glossed over the dispossession of Native Americans by celebrating uh, a moment of friendship, alleged friendship, uh, between um, the colonial population and Native Americans. I also want to say a little bit before I sign off today about President Biden's 
agenda and his Build Back Better agenda and his infrastructure bill that was passed. You know, a lot of people keep saying this was a bipartisan bill. Actually, it really wasn't. It was, despite the fact that six House Democrats voted against it, it was mainly a Democratic bill. Only 13 Republicans had the decency to vote for the infrastructure of our country. <clears throat> An overwhelming majority, over 200, you know, nearly 200 Republicans voted against it. So when people keep saying bipartisan, bipartisan, they should remember that an overwhelming majority of Republicans voted against it. And the 13 House Republicans who voted for it, which includes Adam Kinzinger and Lynn Cheney, the only two, well, Lynn Cheney, I don't think, voted for it. But Adam Kinzinger, who actually is also in the January 6th commission to uh, investigate the insurrection uh, by uh, Trump's acolytes, um, you know, those 13 Republicans have been receiving death threats and are being virtually read out of their party. So I want people to remember that. A lot of attention has been on the Sixth House Democrats who I think reached a deal with Speaker Nancy Pelosi that they could on principle vote against this because it didn't come with the social infrastructure bill that they had promised to include, right? Uh, they had promised to include climate change and social infrastructure, that these two bills would go together. But the Republicans and moderate and conservative Democrats made it impossible to do that. But these six Democrats could vote their conscience because they had reached a deal with probably one of the most... All right, I'm sorry about that. Um, point that I was making about the six Democrats who reached a deal with Speaker Pelosi, who's probably the most adroit parliamentarian and speaker that this country has ever seen, um, to be able to vote their conscience because she had enough votes with the 13 Republicans and an overwhelming majority of the Democrats voting for it. She had enough votes. Um, the head of the Progressive Caucus, Representative Kamala Jaipal, also voted for this bill. So these three young women could vote their conscience. Uh, well, not three. Uh, these four young women, including Representative Jamal Bowman from New York, could vote their conscience. And I think it is important for us to remember that any achievements that will come with the Biden presidency, including this big infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, will come all despite of the Republican Party, because the Republican Party has become such a treasonous, power-hungry party that they will actually act against this country rather than allow a Democratic president any victory. Their opposition to President Obama was tinged with racist hatred, uh, but even to President Biden, because he has an African-American, Indian-American vice president. Um, the hatred towards her coming from the Republican Party knows no bounds. The good thing is that the January 6th Commission is also carrying on, and we know that, um, you know, Steve Bannon has been arrested finally for contempt, for not offering evidence. He's clearly involved in the January 6th uh, um, uh, attempted coup. 
Uh, and I hope that this commission will bring these people to justice, all these people who tried to de- destroy democracy. Every time we get more news about how intimately the White House was involved, certain members of Congress were involved, and sometimes even some members of the Capitol Police Force uh, who have now been found out and have been made to resign so and are being prosecuted. I think it is really important for us to see this happening now um, because, of course, um, after Reconstruction, many of those people who had taken up arms against the United States, former Confederates, including the Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens, was allowed to come back to Congress. And that was one of the horrors of the Jim Crow era. The South may have lost the war, but they won the peace. And they went against everything that the Lincoln administration, the Grant administration, had tried to implement. Went against everything in terms against against everything in terms of emancipation uh, and, and black rights. So I think it is uh, again um, uh, amazing how much history does not repeat but rhymes with the past. Um, I also think uh, that uh, we talked about. Uh, black buffalo soldiers um, that we should think about. Sorry? The film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We should think a little bit about um, African-Americans who were very much present in the story of the West. Uh, We don't think about it, but they're not just the buffalo soldiers, but black cowboys like Nate Love or Stagecoach Mary who delivered the U.S. mail with a rifle uh, in a side, uh, these are memorable characters, and a new movie, which I haven't yet seen, uh, called The Harder They Fall, has recreated some of these historic black characters uh, in the West, um, and I actually want to see it and see how exactly they have dealt uh, with um, African Americans in the West, uh, keeping in mind that after the fall of Reconstruction, uh, not just individuals, but Many black people try to leave the South and move to Kansas and Oklahoma. The ones who left for Kansas called themselves exodusters after Exodus. Uh, they were leaving the Egypt of the South, the land of oppression, and trying to find freedom as the chosen people of God after having gotten their freedom. And, um, you know, many of them went to Oklahoma, uh, at that time Indian Territory, um, which is also an interesting, I, you know, uh, uh, episode in, in American history and black history because many black and white settlers in Oklahoma were actually settling on Indian territory, on Indian land promised by the federal government. Uh, of course, the federal government reneged on this eventually uh, and took away most of their lands and you had the entry of Oklahoma as a state. Um, uh, uh, the federal government at this time was not just fighting the awful punitive wars against Native American nations in the West, the Plains Indians, the Kota, the Dakotas, the Nez Perce, and others, but they are also displacing them many times to Indian Territory, which at that time was inhabited by Southeast Native American nations like the Cherokees, the Creeks, the Choctaws, and the Seminole that had been displaced by Andrew Jackson's Trail of Tears. Um, so it's a very messy history. But for black people, uh, the West also represented an attempt to try and gain land and citizenship. It was 
proposed by Ida B. Wells, that the West be uh, a homeland for black people. In fact, before the Civil War, many abolitionists like Benjamin Lundy thought that African Americans should form a colony in Texas and Mexico uh, away from white terror uh, and have land and freedom. So this dream of having a black uh, free you know, land and, and black homes and black towns, which actually did pop up uh, in many places in the West and also in the South, was a, a long one. Um, of course, we know that in the end, this history has been somewhat forgotten. Uh, and even though I can't talk about the merits of this movie, The Harder They Fall, I think it's good that they're at least paying some attention to black history in the West. Um, there are very good historians like Quinter Taylor who have uncovered this history, but in popular culture, people don't know much about it. And so it is important, in fact, to um, to tell that history. Uh, and the West was seen as a land of freedom uh, for many people right from the Northwest Ordinance when, in fact, slavery was banned um, in areas north and west of the Ohio River. Um, and um, there was some attempt made with all the land acquired through the Louisiana Purchase to restrict the expansion of slavery in the West. So there's a history of trying to keep the West free soil, emancipated territory. The problem here, of course, is that in many cases, this all came at the expense of the original inhabitants of this land, Native Americans. So I think that's all for us today, for our show. Uh, we've had a longer show than we normally do, but there was so much to talk about with the Rittenhouse uh, travesty and with um, the important events that we mark in November and seeing how they connect with our past. Thank you for having me. I hope to talk to you again in December. Have a good Thanksgiving, everyone.